Hi everybody, my name is Ben and welcome to Headcanon, the podcast dedicated to exploring the vast reaches of cinematic universes that never were and never shall be. Every week on this podcast, I select a movie at random from a carefully curated list of some of the weirdest and most obscure movies I've never seen, I watch and review it, and then I try to imagine what it would be like if I was given the opportunity to expand it into a soulless, cash-grab, multimedia franchise. I pitch sequels, prequels, spin-offs, crossovers, gritty reboots, TV adaptations, video games, and even porn parodies. And that's a prospect that gets skeevier and skeevier every week as I slowly come to realize just how many movies on my list are... Well, really quite offensive on their own, and only made more offensive when you turn them into porn. So, yeah, there's that. Uh, this week's episode is about a movie called The Assignment, and I'm going to have to deal with the, the controversy right off the bat. Actually, I'm going to wait until after I watch the movie. I, I, I always record these intros first, and then I, I pause it and watch the movie after, and then I come back. And I want to know how the movie actually dealt with the the... I don't know if you want to say sensitive material before I actually comment upon it, but there was a controversy surrounding this film, uh, accusations of transphobia, you know, and, and I, I want to see how the movie actually deals with the, this kind of stuff before I, uh, you know, I, I don't want to go into it assuming the worst or, or, or what have you, or assuming what I'm even going to think about it, because I know I have my own sort of preconceptions and, and positions when it comes to the application of cultural values and and social mores onto art and i happen to be fairly libertarian on that front that's one of the few areas of my life in which i would call myself a libertarian uh, but i don't want to i don't want to let that bias fuel anything so i'm just going to sort of try to go into it as, as blind as possible but but beyond that uh, and i i don't know i mean if that counts as a trigger warning if it is i'm not, I'm not really a trigger warning guy uh, i'm not one of those like fucking sjw snowflakes fucking in their trigger warnings in their safe spaces i'm not that guy either but I think I mentioned it on a previous podcast. I find it problematic when art is called problematic. I feel like the point of art is to sort of compel you to think differently and, and affront your senses and your sensibilities with things that you maybe hadn't considered. So I feel like when somebody says, oh, this is problematic, my response typically is, well, that's kind of the point. But again, I don't know. It all depends on execution. So I don't know and I don't want to I don't want to state anything equivocally, uh, at least right now. I uh, will get to that when I watch the movie. But beyond that, there are uh, other interesting things about this movie uh, before I watch it. Uh, it's directed by Walter Hill, who you probably recognize that name. He, he directed the 48 Hours movies, uh, the, the Eddie Murphy and Nick Nolte movies. He also directed The Warriors, a very good movie, both of which uh, I won't be watching for this podcast because they're too well-known. They're a little too mainstream. I know people talk about The Warriors as if it's a cult movie, and technically it is, but I feel like it's it's just too well-known at this point. It's it's sort of like what mainstream people know of as a cult movie, so I don't really have much that I can really add to the discussion of it. I might change my mind on that down the line, uh, but he does have a couple of other movies on his filmography that I probably will be watching eventually, uh, the first being Supernova, which uh, sounds weird because I think the only... Uh, th- thing about that movie that anybody remembers is that it was probably pretty shitty but the reason i want to watch it on top of the fact that i think it's just it's kind of an obscure film at this point people have if they don't remember it not so fondly they probably don't remember it at all i actually remember liking it so i i want to see if it holds up in my estimation or if i would if as always happens when I, I watch a movie that I saw years ago and liked, I find out I was a fucking idiot and it was terrible. So that's kind of my interest with, with that. And, and again, it, it has to come up at random. So, you know, I may never get to see it the, the, through the course of the podcast, but it's on the list. And the other one that I can think of offhand that he did that, that I want to watch is a movie called Crossroads. 
it's um about uh, James Earl Jones as the devil, and it's the uh, who's the old blues musician that supposedly sold his soul to the devil. I can't remember the, his name. I'm not a blues guy, but it's an interesting or potentially an interesting movie with Ralph Macchio as as a, I believe the blues musician that sells his soul, which is weird on its own because I'm almost certain that the guy in real life was black and and they cast Ralph Macchio for some reason. Uh, so yeah, that that that's a thing as well. Uh, it also stars Michelle Rodriguez, mostly known, well, I don't know if most well-known. I was going to say most well-known as Ana Lucia from Lost, but I would guess nowadays she's most well-known for the Fast and Furious franchise and maybe even the Resident Evil franchise. Only I think she's only in a few of those. And I would say I, I probably will end up watching the Resident Evil movies for my franchise special episode at some point, just because while the, the franchise itself is well-known, a lot of the sequels in between aren't necessarily... I, it's the kind of thing where I try to relax that standard for the franchises because you never know if people have carried on with an entire series. So, like, Nightmare on Elm Street, for example, everyone's seen the first one, but you might not have seen the fifth or sixth one. So, you know, that that is, I feel like, a valid exercise to watch those and kind of contrast and compare the whole series. Uh, and I mean, I'm probably not going to watch Fast and the Furious ever, one, because I'm not a huge fan of those movies to begin with, and two, that's not one of those cases. Everybody kind of knows what those movies are and what they think of them one way or the other, and there's not really much utility in me watching them. But uh, uh, Michelle Rodriguez, she doesn't really have a lot else that I that I would necessarily watch. The other interesting thing about this movie, it was originally called Tomboy, the script, and it was written in 1978. And apparently, I, I guess the, the original script was much different, but Walter Hill, the director, optioned it back then, and I think had to re-up it a couple times, because he could never quite crack it. He tried doing rewrites, and tried working on it over the years. Uh, it was written by a guy named Dennis Hamill, who uh, doesn't have really a lot of credits, or at least nothing really of interest to me, again, for this podcast, but he was, I guess he's mostly a journalist, at least according to Wikipedia, but, uh, but yeah, they, he's been, Walter Hill had been working on this for a long time, and only just sort of cracked it recently. It came out, I believe it was made in 2016. I thought it came out in 2017. The IMDb still says 2016. But uh, yeah, it was, it was a long gestating script process. So that's another thing that's, again, of interest to me just because I'm, I'm curious, did they did they change a lot? Did they modernize it? Has it shifted considerably since its inception? Or is it going to feel outdated? Did they did they try so desperately to not kill their darlings to keep the things that excited them about the script way back when in 1978 to the point where you know maybe it doesn't even really fit with today's uh, you know norms of storytelling? And the reason I, I ask that question specifically is because I do believe the film is very deliberately a throwback to the exploitation films of that era. So again, I'm, I'm curious. Did they at least do any work to sort of shape it to fit? Because I was going to say modern exploitation films, but really there aren't. I mean, what we call modern exploitation films are deliberately referential of classic exploitation films. There really isn't like modern exploitation that isn't, you know, doing that. So I, I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm very curious to watch this. I'm noticing a pattern recently, at least in this block of 10 episodes, where if I'm really, really excited by something, it ends up being terrible. And if I'm, I have no preconceptions or if maybe I assume it's going to be bad, I, I kind of like it. I really liked Collision Course, for example, where I thought I'd hate it. I really hated Project Metal Beast, for example, and I, I thought I'd love it. And uh, so I, I, I don't know what to think at this point. I don't know what to think going into this. But I'm going to pause the podcast here. I'm going to watch The Assignment from 2016, and then I'm going to come back and I'm going to tell you what I think. Hello, Frank. You can call me the doctor. I'm the one who operated on you. And the reason why is simple. You killed my brother. 
This operation's your reminder of the terrible thing you did. I've liberated you from the macho prison you've been living in. Good luck, Frank. This is your opportunity for redemption. Frank, I need to clear my head. Frank? Look a little different, huh? I don't know what to say. I got hired to do this job. The mob wanted to get even. Why me? The doctor wanted you. The guy you pushed a year ago. It was a family thing. I wanted to cause Frank Kitchen enormous psychic pain. to speak to this doctor. I need to live in the way I do. One thing's for sure. Change is gonna come. I'm still trying to figure you out. Haven't I made enough trouble for you? I gave you a new chance in life. You wasted it. There was anything left of Frank Kitchen. It was his point-blank aim. Time to get even. And I'm back, and I've watched The Assignment, directed by Walter Hill from 2016. And I, um, well, I guess I'll just start with the premise. I alluded to this early on in my, in my intro, that uh, there was accusations of transphobia, and that's all to do with the, the central premise of the movie, which is, well, I'll just say it's a centered around a forced gender reassignment surgery. The assignment of the title is, I mean, going into it, if you know anything about it, if you know it's about a hitman, for example, you might think the assignment refers to an assignment to kill a person. And technically it does, but it also refers to uh, the sort of cheeky double meaning where the, the premise is a hitman kills the wrong person, essentially. Well, they kill the right person. They kill the person they were hired to kill, not knowing that uh, that person's sister is a psychotic plastic surgeon who uh, then arranges for the hitman to be kidnapped by his mafia handlers and handed over so that that she can perform a, a radical forced sex change operation to turn the hitman into a hit woman. I guess out of revenge? Only That's part of the problem is they don't really explain a lot as far as motivations at all throughout the movie. I mean, other than the central one, which is revenge, or a series of revenge plots. And that's fine, such as it goes, but when you have something as, as crazy as I'm going to turn you into a woman, I feel like you need more than what the movie presented. But uh, that's getting ahead of myself. I'll, i got to uh, talk about, uh, as far as whether or not I feel the movie is transphobic, or if so, do I feel the movie justifies its transphobia based on, on the execution? And that's... I think that's kind of where I'm I'm falling. Overall, I will say I did not enjoy this film all that much. I feel it's 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 kind of flat uh, all told and it feels like the kind of movie that you would expect them to have a lot of passion for, again like a throwback to exploitation movies and if you grew up loving those kind of movies, you want to kind of you make your own version of it and the fact that it's it's dealing with sensitive subject matter that might offend a lot of people, yeah that that doesn't matter cuz that's the point of the genre. But, but I don't feel that passion. But that being said, the premise has nothing to do with what I, I didn't like about this movie. And if anything, I wanted it to be more kind of crass and in your face about that. I think the big problem, 
It's going to sound like I'm saying the big problem with the assignment isn't that it's transphobic, it's that it's not transphobic enough. That's not the case. But I do say the big problem is they didn't go far enough, and they didn't... When I say they didn't justify that premise, the premise doesn't really matter. The The gender reassignment surgery at the center of the story is kind of just an arbitrary event. It, like it, The consequences of that, the specific consequences that you would expect to, to come from that, don't really factor into the story or matter to the story it could be anything i i was thinking of like john wick and they oh they kill his dog and that's what sets him on his journey of revenge well in this movie it's the you kidnap me and turn me into a woman that's what sets him slash her on her journey of revenge but it could have been anything else it doesn't you know it doesn't draw anything out from that i was thinking i i watch uh star trek voyager every night because it's on uh on antenna tv now and and it's one of those sh- if you ever watched that show it was about the ship lost in space and they never really dealt with that fact in any serious way they were never like struggling there you know, it was like you know oh that's just going to be a, a typical adventure show it's going to be next generation all over again and that's the big problem with that show is like you had a great premise here you could have told a lot of great stories about what it's like for a, a starship to be lost in in another part of the galaxy with no help but they never really dealt with that and with the re- with the assignment it, it, yeah it never really deals with the fact that that like what does it mean for this character to start out as a man and now be a woman I, I mean, other than, yes, yeah, she has to take hormones now, and uh, she looks different to the people who once knew her, but that doesn't even factor in. It's not that you'd think at the very least, like, that'd be an opportunity to go undercover with a group of people that knew you before, but don't know you now, so now you have the advantage. You turn, I don't want to say a disadvantage, being a woman isn't necessarily a disadvantage, but turning this, this trauma that happened to you into an advantage, and turning it against the very people who, who organized it in the first place, that doesn't really happen at all you'd think maybe maybe she has to like seduce a man at some point and you know i mean again saying saying it that way that sounds like really crass again going back to sort of the 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 transphobia stuff but just just on a a storytelling level and again i think if they had done that if they had pulled that off if they had executed this better it because it's an exploitation movie and because it's clearly lovingly trying to be an exploitation movie it wouldn't have mattered. Or rather, the people that would be complaining if they were still complaining, and I mean, I guess they were complaining just based on the the idea of the movie. I don't think, I don't know how many of them actually saw it, but, you know, they would be the assholes because they were complaining about something that was built in. It was baked into the cake of the movie. But they just, they don't even do that well. And I'm a fan of of the exploitation movies that this movie is referencing, and I can see where they just sort of half-assed it and, and it was very just lazy as a product, as a final product. And, you know, and I thought, like, I thought this might happen, but I assumed that if it did, if, if this was the, the feeling I was going to come away with, that it would be because the movie went too far in the other direction, that it tried to be too serious and too grounded and didn't embrace the craziness of its premise. But that's not even really true either. It's still, I mean, it's goofy. It's, I wouldn't say it's crazy, but it's it's very goofy. It's very silly. I mean, it's very self-serious. There's a lot of moments like the villain quotes Shakespeare and Edgar Allan Poe all the time, and it's in that way where it's just like, I want you to know that I looked these references up so they sound smart. That's that's definitely what it feels like. And there's a lot of stuff like that. And the action, such as it is, and I'll get to that later because there's very little real action in, the move, in this action movie, but 
what, what little there is is shot very much like you're supposed to to take this seriously like it is like a john wick like they thought they that's the movie they were making but it's so poorly staged I'll just get to it now, I guess, that I do that a lot, I think, where I, I think I'm going to talk about something later, and then I'm like, fuck it, I'll talk about it now, the action in this movie. Towards the end, it gets a little better, and I say a little, that that's the operative word, because it's never great, but for most of it, for, for two-thirds of the movie, it's not even passable. There's a montage where she just sort of kills all the people that she can find that are associated with the the mob boss played by Anthony LaPaglia who turned against her and, and turned her over to the plastic surgeon. And, like, they're going out of their way to, like, give them clever names. Like, this is, you know, Polly the whatever, and he's the guy who runs this operation. But it's like, oh, just to kill him, like, in one scene where she walks in and shoots a guy... And then, like, there's one thing that, like, it's like a hallway scene, and it's shot in that sort of, like, that forward motion where, like, a better production team would have been would have done something like the Daredevil hallway fight. But it's just her going through a hallway and shooting a guy and then shooting another guy, and it's just really boring. And a lot of the action in this movie is either, I mean, there's, the few incidents that there are are just very, very boring and very pedestrian and simple. And for something like this, I feel like you need to have... Some, some excellent choreography in, in terms of your, your fight sequences, your shootouts. You need to have, like, a bar scene where the whole place gets exploded or something like that. You need to have something memorable because I, otherwise you're just coasting on, isn't it weird that it, this was a guy and now it's a girl? Because it's like, and this goes to, to more character as well because the other big problem is the character doesn't change. I mentioned that they don't really deal with the consequences of its premise. The fact that, that this guy becomes this girl doesn't matter to the character. He's a hitman, now she's a hitman, and she has the same skill set, and she does the same thing she would have done, except now it's out for revenge, and she doesn't learn, like, how to live as a woman, she doesn't learn to accept what it is to be, she doesn't learn anything about what she used to be as a man. That's, and it's, like, the motivation of the villain, it's not like a, like an ironic punishment, like, oh, well, he used to be, like, a huge misogynist, and now he's a woman. Like, uh, I'm thinking of that, that, uh, switch movie uh, the the where the guy I think dies and then wakes up it's Jimmy Smith and then he wakes up as Ellen Burstyn I'm pretty sure or no Jimmy Smith is the love interest no it's just some guy and then he gets killed and he wakes up as Ellen Burstyn and then fucks Jimmy Smith but the whole point of that is like he learns that he was mistreating mistreating women all that time and that's that's I think the only way to go with this story to to justify that element and it doesn't bother to do that. I mean, I guess you could say she's humbled a bit, which may even be a little insulting under the circumstances. Oh, now that I have a vagina, I know what it is to be put low, you know? But I, I don't know. It's just, it, it's not enough. None of it is enough. And that's that's this movie in a nutshell. None of it is enough. Whatever seeds of potentially interesting storytelling are there are not grown into anything worthwhile. And, and I can't say that I was so disappointed in it. This wasn't a Project Metal Beast situation where I was really, really excited. But I was a, I was a little bit... I, I mean, I, as much as I tried to go in blind, I, I was a little hopeful. Just because I like Walter Hill as a director, obviously. And him doing this kind of movie, I feel like he had the sensibility to, to make it work. And I frankly don't understand why why he didn't try harder. I feel like it does feel lazy to me. And for something, again, going back to the history of this, that the script is around since the 70s and he'd been working on it so long, that sounds like a passion project to me. This does not look like a, 
even a misguided passion project. It just looks like it looks like he was a director for hire, and I know for a fact he wasn't. So it's it's kind of kind of jarring in that respect. I mean, and, and that's not to, I mean it's not terrible. I mean, completely terrible. It's not irredeemable. The acting I think is all solid in it. Uh, I will say Michelle Rodriguez specifically kudos for for leaning into this as much as she does and and she does take it seriously for what it's worth and she also goes full frontal which i don't usually point that out because i'm not a skeeve ball there's actually a, a youtube series that i watch these reviewers it's called bloodbath and beyond and they i mean they seem like perfectly fine people i guess i started watching them because i was looking for other reviews for the invisible maniac this movie i hated early on in this podcast if you haven't heard that it's episode two and i just want to see what other people thought about it and they fucking loved the movie and and this is why i'm talking about them is because the reason they loved the movie is because it had all these boobs in it and that's something i cited as very sort of crass and manipulative about the film but they were like yeah but then there are these boobs and then there are these boobs i think independent of movies with boobs in them they're they're perfectly fine youtube reviewers but i don't want to be that guy is what i'm saying so but when i say i commend it for going full frontal it's because of the the specific nature of this film and i mean part of it is kind of a, a, a silly kind of bit of visual language where you're like see this is a dude this is a guy that's his penis and then later on you're gonna see him and there's his vagina because he's a girl now see it's it's very kind of on the nose but Michelle Rodriguez plays both parts. She plays the 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 man, and then you see the the one scene where it's a full frontal uh, male nude figure. It's her face put on a male's body. But in every other scene, unless there was a specific reason why you needed to see like her without breasts, for example, it's it's just her with a fake beard and like a ponytail, kind of like manned up in in terms of makeup. And then obviously, you know, when she wakes up, she looks like the Michelle Rodriguez we know. And you see again full frontal nudity. We see everything because in that moment narratively it actually does make sense you you should have to see everything to see you know you're seeing it as shockingly as she is the problem with that and the reason i think it ultimately would have worked better if it was two actors because her as a man doesn't really like it's eh, maybe 10 minutes most of it is her as a woman after the fact so it's not like well you needed her performance there i think i mean it was probably to to get a, a degree of consistency in the in the performance but it could have been someone else logistically and it would have made that moment where she's looking in the mirror and seeing a different person feel uh, more impactful because as it stands, I mean, she it, she pulls off looking like a man in terms of the makeup and, and everything that, that, that is used to, to create that effect, but it's not so much that it doesn't just look like she's shaved after she's a woman because it's it's michelle rodriguez in a, in a beard and if and you know if you recognize her you would recognize her in that role and you go oh she's playing a man and again well done for what it is but then she looks in the mirror and it's not like they could fix like fuck up her bone structure maybe had they done that maybe had they given the male version uh, like a fatter face or something or you know done some some more kind of makeup work but really it's just like she's she gets up and she's groggy and we see that she's uh, a woman now in fact we see like her breasts are sort of hanging out of her her uh, uh shirt and then she looks in the mirror but it really just feels like they gave me a shave they shaved my beard no and 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 that and as and as much as i say that the michelle rodriguez as a man thing works it works because you're willing to suspend your disbelief long enough to to let it work it still isn't the greatest fake beard in the world, so there is that level of silliness, and I don't think that was intentional by any means. I think that was just, it's just a bad fake beard or, or just a bad uh, application of a beard onto a person. 
Um, but yeah, but but I will say just as a again as a performance, she acquits herself well. I I believe it. I believe that this is a, a man reluctantly in a woman's body, not un, not really sure how to walk or how to feel. She never does like a a like a female sort of model walk. Like like she forgets that she's supposed to be a man. She she walks very rigidly. She's always very awkward and confused and and kind of pained to be in this situation. You know, I feel like she does all of that that very well. But like I said, there's just very little for her to work with. There's very little to the character in terms of, of the writing of it. And it seems like the whole thing is just built around that, that one shocking moment where she sees herself and realizes what happened. And everything after that is just, well, we're, we we got to make the rest of the movie now. I guess it's an action movie. I guess she can go kill some people. And that's that's really all the movie is. You know, and and if if that's enough, and I, no, it's never enough. I was gonna say if that's enough for you, you might enjoy it. There's, I can't conceive of the person listening to this who would be like, well, yeah, that's enough for me. No, it, it's just again, it's not enough. None of the movie is enough. And you have, maybe maybe that's even even a detriment to the film. I keep saying you know the actors were good because you have Sigourney Weaver. She plays the villainous plastic surgeon, and through most of the movie, you're seeing her kind of at the end it's it's told non-linearly and i'll, I'll get to that because that's really fucking dumb fuck it again i'll get to it now because why do that again after i've even pointed it out there's like multiple points of narration where you have the 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 scenario where you're following michelle rodriguez and then she starts doing a recording like in case she dies this can be found and and the people who did this to her can be brought to justice so she's narrating events but then they also keep cutting back to sigourney weaver who's in an insane asylum and this is after whatever happened with michelle rodriguez so we know that it ended in such a way where sigourney weaver was pinned with these crimes that we're i think we're led to assume were michelle rodriguez killing these people and eventually spoilers you find out it was but she's being interviewed by Tony Shalhoub, who's a doctor, who's, I don't know if he's working with the police or not, or if he's just working in the hospital, but he, it seems like he's trying to get her to confess something. Ultimately, she sort of does and sort of doesn't. She kind of manipulates him. It's like a cat and mouse game or sort of like back and forth between the two of them. And that's where a lot of the, the shitty like like Shakespeare quotes and things come from. And then, like I said, Sigourney Weaver, I don't even have to say she's good in it. She's a great actress. She's good in everything. And I would say the same for Tony Shalhoub. Uh, but well, substituting actor for actress, because uh, unlike Michelle Rodriguez in this movie, uh, he has a dick. But anyway, a lot of the like the, that's a significant subplot of the movie, and one it kills all tension because it's like you know the end result. Well, there's a there's a bit at the end that's I, I, a fairly good twist ending, but other than that, it it just sort of it, like I said, it kills all kind of narrative momentum. But more than that, the the actual content of those scenes are so unnecessary and i would argue most narration is unnecessary both forms of narration in this movie both her recounting events and michelle rodriguez narrating events completely unnecessary completely violates the sort of show don't tell role of movies i feel like you and you should have and when i say it violates that role i don't think that's as hard as and fast a role as a lot of uh people think it is i think there is room sometimes for that kind of very just basic exposition if you just want to get it out of the way i think it can work i don't think it's always a bad thing but in this movie it's a bad thing and the, when when tony shalhoub keeps coming back to sigourney weaver's character and talking to her try to draw things out it's just constantly reiterating the premise it's like she's explaining in a million different ways yeah i kidnapped a hitman who killed my brother and cut his dick off and made him a woman 
isn't that isn't that crazy? But like she's because she's trying to hide it. She's trying to obliquely reveal it without admitting directly to it in any way that's uh, I guess liable for prosecution or whatever. But you obviously know what happens because you're watching the movie. You know this is what she did. So you just know that she's trying to obliquely not reveal it in a million different ways, and it doesn't add anything. You don't learn anything more really. It's I mean, and that she's a mad scientist. That's all. That's all that really establishes and it's so much of the movie is devoted to it that could have been devoted to some awesome action scenes that you didn't fucking direct if you had told me this was a first time director i'd be like okay it's it's you know not bad for for somebody who didn't really have any experience with this but walter hill is just better than this you know and as much as i want to say that sigourney weaver can make anything work this character is so not only poorly written but poorly conceived the the why of why she does anything doesn't make any sense just starting with why does she turn this guy into a woman as opposed to do anything else because and they try to they try to explain it by saying like she was doing a, a social experiment and maybe even trying to do him a favor give him a a redemptive arc by turning him into a woman and seeing well you know what what is it is it a, now that he's a woman, now that he's taking hormones, will that soften him, or will it? Will she now still be the the ruthless killer? But then, I don't know. Like, why not just deform him in some way, or cut his arms off, or something? Which that's the thing. Later on, they have their confrontation that eventually led to Sigourney Weaver being in in the, the asylum, and that's exactly what she's gonna do. She's like, well, you know, you didn't soften like I thought you might, or I didn't. I gave you a chance, and you didn't, you know, live up to it. So I'm gonna cut your arms off didn't did that not ever occur to you to just do that in the first place because then they she definitely wouldn't have killed anyone or he if you didn't do the completely arbitrary and, and pointless sex change operation and, and one line or, or at least one addition make that character sort of misogynistic that would have solved it oh i'm punishing you for your past behavior this is your ironic punishment but they don't even know to do that that seems like an obvious thing and they they can't even get that right and yeah, just it, you shouldn't be asking why is this plastic surgeon turning this man into this into a woman in this movie that is all about that. That should be clear. That should be obvious. That should make perfect sense. Even in an exploitation movie where you have to suspend your disbelief and accept a lot of cheesiness and crassness and grossness, you should be able to explain the the logical A to B to C philosophy of I'm going to turn this person into another thing, and it makes sense for, because of that whatever that is you need to know that and you never know that in this movie and at one point she's like she says she's gonna confess but then she confesses to something else and it's like she knew she was never gonna get out of prison and her whole explanation for everything she does never really connects well uh but and i i that's again that's kind of the whole movie nothing really connects well whatever might have been interesting or well done just it the, the things that are well done aren't really explored. The things that, that aren't done well are explored too much. You know, it, all across the board, it's just poorly calculated. And and I, I can't really recommend it to anyone, especially, like I said, I'm probably the target audience for a movie like this. I love the exploitation movies that this movie is lovingly, ref or I would say lovingly referencing, seems to want to lovingly reference, but is so bad at it that it kind of insults it. And to say, I mean, it's insulting to the people who were genuinely insulted by the quote-unquote transphobia about the movie. I'm even going to go so far to say maybe it's not even technically transphobic because she, I mean, it's not like, 
it's not about a, a trans person. It's about somebody who is forced into a situation that that happens to to be sort of trans gender adjacent i think i I would guess forced gender reassignment surgery because there's no identity attached to it it's not like you know somebody who actually you know sees themselves as a woman but is in a man's body or vice versa you know that's an that's an identity this isn't that this is just this fucked up thing happened to me and it's still fucked up even if other people go through that for legitimate and and sanctioned consenting reasons you know it's fucked up in this instance so i don't know if it even qualifies as transphobia in that respect uh, but it also, but it does qualify as a as a piece of shit movie. Well, maybe not a piece of shit. Maybe that's that's too harsh. It's a bad movie. It's it's just not it's not good enough to to be anything other than something that gets forgotten. And then, you know, twenty years from now, I remember it badly, so I don't rewatch it. Like I'll eventually rewatch Supernova, only to be disappointed. Uh, so that that's the assignment, and and uh, I wouldn't watch it. Don't bother to, to seek it out. But uh, do stick around because I'm going to come back and I'm going to pitch out my, my cinematic universe uh, for this movie that I, I didn't like and don't think deserves one. I had forgotten about her Shakespeare obsession. First thing she did after she got here was send for the complete works. You got a little blast of it, huh? As my inability to recognize a quote from Richard II was held to be an unforgivable fault. She's constantly reminding me she's probably the most clever woman who ever drew a breath. Just this morning, I got a nice little lecture on Poe. Poe? As in Edgar Allan? Oh, God. Is there another? Do you read Poe? Of course not. You don't read Shakespeare, so... Why would you read one of our country's greatest and most influential authors? Well, when I was a kid, I always liked the Vincent Price movies. What, what's the point? Poe once wrote an essay called The Philosophy of Composition. In it, he develops his theories about proper art being indifferent to moral and political considerations. That real art was about its own dynamic inner relationships, able to stand on style alone. You should read it. I guess I have to ask this again. What's the point? The point, Dr. Galen, is that in addition to being a medical doctor, I am an artist. And I'm back, and I have my cinematic universe for The Assignment from 2016, directed by Walter Hill. And this this was maybe the hardest one so far just because of how uninteresting this movie was. And I've watched some uninteresting movies. Robert and the Dreamweavers, as crazy as its setting was, was a very uninteresting movie. This one, uh, just, there really wasn't all that much of a world to expand, honestly. Or at least not one that I really cared all that much about. You know, that's, that's part of the, the problem. Like I said, it's, just, it's all centered around, oh, this guy's now a girl, and eh, whatever, I guess. So... To, to try to, to expand the world, I had to kind of invent a lot of stuff, but hopefully it worked out, at least for my purposes, which is to be able to stop doing this podcast and get to a, a better movie to watch for next time. Uh, so let's get this shit over with. Uh, first off, I do got to say spoilers abound. Uh, I, I try to, to keep my first review section spoiler-free. I've softened on that stance in, in the last the recent episodes, but I still try to do that for for the most part. 
But I do have to spoil everything else in this next part. I have to talk about the ending and the specifics because obviously I've got to spin off movies from that that point. So uh, if you if you don't want to be spoiled for the assignment any more than you already have, please stop listening now. Maybe go watch the assignment and then come back, and then we can we can uh, indulge in this uh, this pointless exercise together. Uh, so there's that. Also. If you want to email my podcast, you can do so at headcanonpodcast at gmail.com. That's H-E-A-D-C-A-N-N-O-N-P-O-D-C-A-S-T at gmail.com. And you can send requests for movies for me to review and pitch the Cinematic Universe for. And I'll basically do anything you send uh, short of, like, snuff films or something. Uh, so it's def- definitely send that email. Also, you can send comments, questions, insults, and so forth. And also, if you want to find me at my website, uh, I'm assuming most people probably find podcasts on iTunes, as I do. So my website is headcanonpodcast.blogspot.com. Same spelling. That's canon like the military instrument, not like actual headcanon, because that would have been too clever. So uh, send an email to that email address. Visit me at the website. And if you did find me on iTunes, please uh, you know, subscribe, rate, review, all that good stuff. Uh, anyway, now that that's all out of the way, I start with the sequel, as I do every week. And for this, I'm, I'm thinking, I feel feel kind of cheap doing this, but basically I'm saying, let's let's have a movie that just facilitates all the things I thought the original movie should have done, but didn't, because that's why it was bad. And I'm saying, you you take advantage of the fact that this character, and I'll, I forgot to even mention that in the review, the character's name is Frank Kitchen. Frank Kitchen. And they establish that that's not his real name, or her now her real name, and she never gets like a female name like Frances Kitchen or something. But like it's just, it's just a pseudonym that that they use when they're what she uses when she's sorry the pronouns are getting to me now. I'm I'm surprised it took this long, but anyway, I'm just gonna say she she uh, uses that fake name on missions. But it's a dumb name, regardless, and, and it's the only name we know the character by, and we have keep having to go, oh, this is what Frank Kitchen is doing right now. I wonder what Frank Kitchen is going to do next. That, that just doesn't work. But anyway, Frank Kitchen, uh, this character, who I'm going to say changes her name to something interesting and good and, and something that rolls off the tongue. I'm not going to try to come up with it now. But this new character, she, played by Michelle Rodriguez still, who she's embraced the fact that, well, she's at least embraced the fact that she's probably never going to be able to go back because this was an illicit experimental sort of thing that uh, she because at one point in the movie she goes to a doctor and says like you know she tries to pretend that it, it was something she went through with consensually but just wants to to turn back into a man now and just asks if it's possible and he says you know no there are waiting lists there are there's therapy you have to go through and obviously the hormone replacement and everything so chances are probably not or at least not anytime soon so what i'm saying is by the end of this movie and the, the beginning of the sequel, Frank Kitchen or Frances Kitchen, whatever you want to call her, has, has accepted this as her new life. She can't really go back. And she's just incorporated it into her, her mission. She's still a hitman. She's gone back to killing people for hire. and But now she can kind of seduce you know men because most of her targets are going to be men. And she can sort of lure them in and then you know, lure them in and, and bring them in for the kill. And so I'm saying that's that's kind of where she is now in her life. And she's hired. I'm, I don't know... I kind of go back and forth on this, but she's hired by somebody. I'm saying either the government or uh, like a family that's affected by it or maybe like a, a creepy sort of men's group. The idea is there's a, a feminist, uh, I guess, gynocratic cult, if you want to call it. Like it's a, a cult of all women who are out for the destruction of men. And the idea is 
just like I thought the exploitation angle with the sort of transphobic stuff could have been more and could have been done well and could have justified itself even as, as sort of crass as, as it is, you know, you do that where it's sort of like these are the people that the men's rights activist groups think are real but aren't really real in like actual real life. But in this movie, they are the, the that exact sort of bullshit stereotype of a cult of women that are out to kill all men and they and recruiting all women into their cause. And uh, the idea is, is Francis Kitchen, I'm just saying Francis Kitchen now, is, is hired to infiltrate this group. And of course, nobody knows you know who she is. They just know her as a woman. But because mentally she is a man and she she and she's obviously a hitman, she knows how to kill, she's the perfect person to infiltrate this place without being swayed by its ideology so she's sent in to to kill their leader essentially to, to get close uh, go undercover and then then kill the the founder of the of this this violent cult before they pull off some terrorist attack or something uh, i don't know what that would be but anyway that, that would be the setup for for the movie and then you know it would be her the the, the long process of her fully accepting life as a woman and maybe even like does she turn on on men does she join the cult you know you can kind of explore all of that and just use this as the springboard for her exploring her new femininity. Uh, I, I don't really have anything else uh, beyond that, but uh, I literally just have a note here uh, in, infiltrating the gyno cult. That's literally all I had, so uh, I don't. I'm not gonna just build this out any more than that. So that that gets me to the prequel, and the prequel was even harder. It was probably of all these things that were all very difficult, this was the hardest one. And that's because, well, again, the movie was pretty uninteresting. But, but also, it's one of those things where it's, it's the movie's all about the present. There's nothing in the world building, or in, even in, there are flashbacks in the movie, but none of them to anything interesting. There's not a lot of potential to say, like, oh, what came before this? I guess he killed more people or killed different people? I mean, you could tell just a basic hitman story, I guess, but you want it to be somehow thematically connected to the, the original movie, or if you can't connect it via the plot. And again, like Sigourney Weaver's character, I mean, seeing what she did before this isn't really all that interesting, any, or at least any more than anything else. So you tell the story, the origin of Frank Kitchen, how he got his name, how he learned to kill, who taught him and everything, but you, you connect it thematically to the original movie where it's all about you know, sort of frustrated masculinity, where you kind of equate learning to kill with learning to be a man. So it's almost like a like a assassination paper moon sort of thing, where you know, he's recruited by a father figure that he never had in his real life. His real father died or abandoned them or whatever. So he he meets he's and he's like a teenager and he meets this guy who happens to be a hitman and teaches him kind of everything he knows about being a hitman, and and definitely equates that to to kind of toxic masculinity. You know, you're you're exerting yourself as a man in the act of killing. Maybe even the gun is sort of a substitute for your own penis, something like that. You can go deep into kind of the philosophy of it, go all Zardoz with it. Uh, but then ultimately that kind of comes into question. I don't know if maybe it's... I mean, I, I don't know how you would construct the dilemma necessarily, but maybe maybe it even comes down to like a, a, a one-sided romance where the older guy that's the, the teacher is sort of grooming the kid in a way that ultimately he rejects and then has to kill his own you know mentor and then that that creates a weird association a weird uh, gender and sexual dynamic to the thing that he's now learned and become very good at and so when then he becomes a hitman you know, he, he has these weird associations with it as he does it I, I mean, again I don't know how the specifics would work but you that it, it, and maybe I'm going a little more deep in the weeds in terms of the psychology of it but that's that's how I would do it in a way where you're ultimately telling 
a story that you've seen a you know a lot of just you know hit men and and stuff like that and and father son relationships but you're connecting it to just the whole idea of gender identity and and the problems or, or not the pro- the problems one might go through when they their gender identity isn't settled and maybe I don't know if you even want to imply that he was a trans person all along mentally and just didn't never realized it like yeah there's something like maybe he was kind of a weak effeminate kid before he was groomed to be this this kind of over masculine killer type and that dichotomy that that cognitive dissonance created by that sort of informed it was like like you know demographic destiny or whatever you want to call it uh something like that but so it's, it's more of a thematic connection than it is a plot connection uh, and then that's that's all i have for the prequel uh, from that, you get to the spinoff, and the spinoff is is where I had some fun. Well, the spinoff and the crossover actually. Uh, but I was the only other character that was interesting because I didn't want to spin off Sigourney Weaver because she's one, she's a villain, and you kind of want to either bring her back for the sequel or, in my case, I, I actually brought her back for the crossover. But you want to take a minor character and kind of see what their world would be like. And sometimes movies don't really have a lot of interesting minor characters, and this one. It didn't really have a lot of interesting minor characters. It had one that I settled on, but it also had an element that I didn't mention in the review, but it was just sort of an offhand line that I think could create its own little world. Uh, with the Tony Shalhoub character, the doctor, who I guess specializes in, in criminal psychosis. They never really establish kind of what he is or why he's there beyond what you see. Like there's no sort of ulterior motive or anything established uh, or backstory really. But I'm saying he's, he's you know, like a profiler doctor sort of he, he helps the fbi with with um developing profiles for for psychotic people and there's a line in his segment where he's talking to sigourney weaver and she mentions experiments that she did on homeless people the idea is that she's like she considers herself an artist that plastic surgery is her art and in order to experiment with that she took homeless people people that no one would miss and she did horrible experiments on them implied to be you know surgical experiments and they never go into detail about what those are and it doesn't really add much like i i don't i think the character would have worked perfectly fine if she had not done anything criminal prior to what she did to frank kitchen and then she just sort of broke and like snapped and, and just did that but they i think they just want to make her evil so or maybe justify her her evil so they say she did all these experiments on homeless people and it never comes up again so i'm saying the the spinoff is tony shalhoub tracking down the homeless people that were experimented on by Sigourney Weaver's character, and it's sort of like a Morlock situation where, like, they they weren't just homeless people; they were the kind of homeless people that like live underground in the subway tunnels and shit, and they have like their own secret society of you know homeless underground dwellers, like chuds, but just you know without the the mutation. But in this case, they were surgically altered in ways that make them look monstrous and they all live together because no one else will have them even the other homeless people are scared of them so they kind of create their own society underground and maybe somebody ends up dead or somebody disappears and they're blamed for it and tony shalhoub being the guy who kind of knows about this stuff she interviewed he interviewed the person that did it and kind of knows more about it than anyone at least willing to assist i mean sorry weaver isn't necessarily assisting the police so he is brought on as as the closest thing to an expert and he goes underground with a team of of cops like into this underground civilization to find these plastic surgery mutants and maybe it's not just plastic surgery maybe it's literally like i mean maybe this goes too far into sci-fi but i was thinking of like that movie upgrade where the guy has like the gun in his arm like it's stuff like that like she kind of literally altered them physically into the point where they are functionally speaking 
more or less than human in, in ways that that can be kind of interesting visually. And so Tony Shalhoub sort of hunting them down, and he's sort of he's sympathetic to them. He sees them as victims, but everyone else sees them as monsters and treats them that way or suspects them uh, of being that. And so you know, and obviously they're looking for missing people or possibly dead people, and so they're ready to kill him. He kill these people, and, and he's the one guy saying, "No, they're human beings. We have to help them." And and obviously I would I would maybe say that they were innocent that that the the kill the the murders were perpetrated by i don't know like maybe there's a serial killer down there as well maybe he's even like a masked guy who you think he's masked because he's hiding his deformed face because he's one of them but then it's like a dr doom scenario where like every time they took off dr doom's face you'd reveal he wasn't scarred after all and he was just really incredibly vain or didn't realize it, like it was a psychosis sort of thing so like he's actually like a, a handsome guy or a pretty woman or something but sees themselves as a monster and that's why they became one uh, something that that uh, just an, uh, another twist to kind of add on to it, uh, but that would be my spinoff, and that gets me to crossover, and this is the one I had the most fun with, I think. Normally, that's not the case. Normally, the crossovers are kind of uh, hard to do because I, they feel sort of cheap and trifling. It's like, eh, what if they meet this person? Just like actual crossovers are. Friday, Freddy versus Jason is the example I always bring up. Yeah, it's a fun movie, but it doesn't. You don't think of it in terms of the canon of the other movies because it doesn't really add anything to it. And I always sort of see the crossovers that way. But this one, just because of the nature of it, and I again I go back to the Sorority Weaver character, who is arguably I mean she's the best actress in the movie, arguably the most interesting character, even if her motivations are very muddled. And a lot of that just is from the performance. She's she just she does a lot with very little. And, and again, to spoil kind of spoil the ending a little bit. The whole thing is her, you know, kind of relating this story, uh, which, again, then Michelle Rodriguez starts relating her own story within that story. But, again, it doesn't really add much. She just keeps kind of going around in circles talking about what happened. And then the reveal at the end is she was very fatalistic. She knew she wasn't going to be let out of prison. She was uh, she was declared uh, non-compass mentis, uh, unable to stand trial because of uh, uh, psychosis. And she doesn't think she's insane. So she was trying to actually like sort of overturn that but knew they would never be convinced of it and at the end you you find out that uh frank kitchen when they can when she when frank kitchen confronted sigourney weaver's doctor i think it's dr jane is her name i can't remember okay i'll just kind of go into the details frank kitchen is killing all the mobsters that frank lapaglia uh hired to to originally turn her over to to the doctor uh, she's basically just trying to get to where the doctor is to find her. So eventually, Frank Kitchen or Francis Kitchen finds where the doctor is, but before she can do anything, uh, she's knocked out, she's she's sedated, and she wakes up in the doctor's lab, his her secret lab, and the doctor's like, I'm going to cut your arm off. I'm going to make it so you can't kill anyone. And she, of course, Frank Kitchen breaks out, kills all the guys. It's the one thing, the closest thing to a, an interesting action sequence. And then you just see her sort of leaning over the doctor and you, with a knife, but you don't know necessarily what happens. And I, this is exactly when I realized, and this is, a bit, I guess, an interesting structure for the twist or setup for it. You realize you never saw Sigourney Weaver's hands because she's always been in a straitjacket. And they make a point of mentioning the straitjacket. Like, at one point, she wants it loosened, and Tony Shalhoub sort of trusts her, but then she attacks him. But at, the, at no point do you see her hands, and that's when you see reveal at the end that her, hand, her fingers have been cut off so that she can never do her art ever again just like you know she tried to to do to frank kitchen to you know remove the thing that that he he she could do kill people you know she did the same thing to her so anyway that's that's the final reveal 
And so I'm saying that she's still in the insane asylum in this this crossover, but she wants to get out, and she wants to do it by forming a, a super team, a sort of suicide squad, but specifically made up of, of uh, transsexual serial killers from movies. So you have, like, Norman Bates from Psycho, or the little girl who, who I think he's grown up in the sequels from Sleepaway Camp, who turned out to have a dick, or uh, Dr. Frankenfurter from Rocky Horror Picture Show. And I'm thinking he's he's sort of the, uh, like, the assistant, like... He uh, you know, he gives her like cybernetic claws so that she can you know still manipulate things and you know with alien technology. I don't know. Does he die at the end of that movie? I can't remember. And then uh, I was thinking, uh, the the villain from Dressed to Kill also a transvestite or uh, maybe Taurus Trap, but the the tele- cause technically he does dress as a woman at one point and he has telekinetic powers. And I was also thinking if you've ever seen the movie High Tension. Uh, technically, you could maybe argue that that main character is a, a female-to-male transsexual, at least mentally. She never went through the process, but she has a split personality that is a man. So you have all these characters assembled, and then, of course, they break out of the asylum, and Frank Kitchen has to, I don't know if I was going to say come out of retirement, or at least clean up his mess, you know, come back to kill uh, the, his archenemy and her new team of... Uh, I keep Again, I keep going back to his. The pronouns really tripped me up. I'm just going to say her across the board, and if I make a mistake, I'm just not going to mention it. But her, as in Frank Kitchen, kills her, as in the doctor. <laughs> or or they, they fight with, with this army of, of uh, uh, trans supervillains. And uh, the thing that appealed to me about this is because I, I feel like it sort of articulates why it's kind of silly to uh, really be offended by a movie like The Assignment, at least from a transphobic perspective, just because it's... It's such a thing in horror anyway, in action movies in general. I think I mentioned Red Heat at one point, where there's a point where one of the assassins dresses up like a nurse and then gets shot by Arnold Schwarzenegger, and everybody's just pointing at the dead body going, hey, look at that tranny. Oh, yeah, did you see that tranny tried to kill that guy? It's like, this This has been a long-standing tradition to the point, and I'm not saying you need to accept it just because it's tradition or like it because of that, but, I don't know, to single this out, and say, well, this is bad for this reason. It, it almost feels like, well, this is just the new thing that's bad, so let's talk about this, rather than every other movie that does it even worse uh, than this one does. Uh, and, again, psych- going back to Psycho, which is considered a great film, it's also a film about a, 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 a transvestite serial killer, and it doesn't really delve into that in any way that is uh, that treats that, that idea seriously. It's just, isn't it shocking that, that he's wearing a wig? So, you know, I, I just feel, and, and that's one of the greatest movies ever, in a lot of people's estimation, not necessarily mine, but, you know, so if that if that can be the case, then maybe we have to think about this with a little more a nuance, but but anyway, that that's my crossover. I, I say, let's think about things with nuance, as I pitched a crossover with Dr. Frankenfurter and Sigourney Weaver from The Assignment, but anyway, that's that, and that gets us to Gritty Reboot, where I, I, I just try to imagine what it would be like if they, they remade this, and normally, I... I this is because these are older movies I'm talking about, and it's like, what if they were remade today? But obviously this was made a couple years ago, so I mentioned that I'm, I'm doing these in sort of genre categories now, and this was modern, which is anything past 2000. So I'm just saying, what if what if there was a do-over? What if uh, you know a production, production company approached me and said, you know, uh, we feel like this assignment movie had some market penetration, but you know, just enough to justify remaking it. Who would you want to pick? To, to direct it and the recast in it. And I'm saying for this, I'm saying Lexi Alexander. And it's a weird pick. I don't know if it's a weird pick, but I found it weird. I looked over her filmography, and she hasn't really done anything of note, at least in film, since 
the movie that is the reason why I'm picking her, and that's Punisher Warzone. If you never saw Punisher Warzone, it's the one that I think probably gets the least play nowadays. Well, I mean, I guess the Dolph Lundgren one. I think more people know of it, but not necessarily fondly. But but Warzone is the one with Ray Stevenson. It's not the one with, with Thomas Jane, with John Travolta in it. It's the, the, the kind of straight-to-video one, and it's the best one. It's the best Punisher movie, and it's, I would argue, better than the show. And I, I did like the show. I liked the uh, the Netflix series. But it's just so hyper-violent and, and gratuitous and awesome. It's everything you want a Punisher movie to be. And Lexi Alexander, who wasn't necessarily known one way or the other as far as, like, like an, she wasn't, like, an accomplished action director or anything. She just looked at what the comic was and said, well, this is what this needs to be. And she did it, and she did it perfectly. And I think part of that is because she was kind of outside of it. She didn't I'm taking this from, like, interviews I've, I've read and listened to with her. That I think part of it was... You know, she was able to come at it somewhat earnestly. She didn't have any expectations about it that that could have been dashed or failed or, or not lived up to. She just kind of did what she thought the best Punisher movie would be, and it turns out she was a really great action director as a result. Uh, so I'm saying, uh, bring this to her and have her engage with it as a proper exploitation movie. And I'm guessing she's probably not a huge fan of exploitation movies, or at least I have no reason to think she is. But she's the kind of director who would, one, you know, you, you come at it from a female perspective because it's all about the female perspective once he becomes a she. But also it's just, well, okay, I guess I, I'm i going to do some research onto what exploitation movies are like and I'm just going to do that. And, and I think she would accomplish the same result. She would probably, you know, she wouldn't be too in love with anything. So she wouldn't have that problem where, you know, maybe she's losing sight of or losing perspective on it. Uh, and she would just she would just try to execute it the best way possible. So uh, that's what I'm saying. Lexi Alexander uh, for the director for this. And also, I guess she's been in kind of movie jail since then. She's done a couple episodes like Arrow and Supergirl and The Flash and stuff. But nothing really. I guess I, I think this is the last feature she did. So and I, I know she she comes up anytime there's like a uh, a female superhero that they want to make into a movie. Like, wow, what about Lexi Alexander? She's on that short list of female directors. Uh, and I'm not even saying necessarily like i could have picked a male director for this i i don't necessarily have a problem with that i don't necessarily think it has to be a female director but i think a female director with the proper perspective would really make this something good and as for recasting you know i i'm, I'm still going with it should be two different people the male and female versions of frank kitchen also change the name to something that, that isn't frank kitchen but you know, i'm saying maybe go with like brother and sister pairs so that when it becomes when one woman becomes the other there's something in the eyes. There's a recognizable factor, and of course, if you get two actor siblings, uh, then that you know that works even better. You have two people that can act and that maybe know how each other act, and they can play off each other even if they're not in the same scene necessarily. They can kind of duplicate their performance. And my first thought was the Gyllenhaals. You can do Jake and Maggie Gyllenhaal. Maybe they're a little too old at this point. I was also thinking. I don't know the name of the. The guy who plays uh, Theon Greyjoy on Game of Thrones has, I believe, a twin sister, a fraternal twin sister, or maybe they're just brother and sister, I don't know. And then the sister's like a singer, but has done acting in the past. I'm saying, so if you want to skew a little younger, there aren't a lot of like brother-sister actor pairs that I can think of that could really fit with it, but I definitely think you want to go that route. I don't know. Or maybe just completely different... I don't know. Or maybe I was thinking like maybe like Laverne Cox if you want to go an actual transgender person and have her you know, play it male and then play it female. But I don't know. Maybe that's maybe that's too far. Maybe that's too insulting because of the nature of the story. And the only other thing I was thinking for for Sigourney Weaver, you don't have to recast Sigourney Weaver because she's Sigourney Weaver. But if you have to, if, if just for the purposes of the argument, you have to. I'm saying Charlotte Rampling. 
just because she has experience doing a lot of weird movies like this with weird premises. I mentioned Zardoz before. She's also in a movie called Max My Love where she uh, has sex with a, a chimpanzee and it becomes like a, a, a cuckolding relationship with her husband. It's And it's the fucked up thing about that movie is it's not as fucked up as you would think it was. Uh, I actually tried to watch it for my other podcast, The Dirty Sons of Pitches, and me and my, my partner Nate on that show watched it and we were like, we, we, we aren't going to be able to get enough out of this. It's just not interesting enough. A movie about Charlotte Rampling fucking a monkey isn't interesting enough for a podcast. Uh, but anyway, I, w- I would go with her just because she has that very sort of stern demeanor, and I think she'd be willing to do it. She, she seems like she'll do anything. She was in the last season of Dexter, as shitty as that was. Uh, she was fine in it, but it just wasn't, wasn't a great role or a great season overall, and ended with the fucking lumberjack. Uh, but anyway, that's my, my, my gritty reboot for The Assignment. A movie that is maybe even too gritty on its own. It's like I said, it's a little too self-serious. But, uh, but that gets us to the back half, which is all the stuff that is in movies. And I start with the TV adaptation. And for this, this is another one where it's like a lot of it is just expanding the the series of events to take place over a series rather than as a, a show. I'm saying it's just it's a revenge tale. It's this shit happens to this person, and it's all about their quest for revenge. But I'm saying it's just a little more expansive. In in this case, I, I, I want to sort of settle on Sigourney Weaver's character, whoever we get to play for the series. She She's sort of like enmeshed in, in a bunch of different cultures, both criminal and otherwise, So because of her, her skill. She's the best plastic surgeon on the planet. So, you know, she has a lot of... Uh, she has fingers in a lot of fires, I guess. Or, no, how do you say No, fingers in a lot of pies. What's the fire... Stokes in a lot of fires? I'm not going to remember that. Anyway, she's got a lot of influence in a lot of different arenas, is the point. And the idea is she's, she's the go-to plastic surgery surgeon for like the rich and famous, the beautiful people. And as a result, she has connections. She has lawyers that can get her off. She has a lot of things that ways, avenues to cover things up. You know, she does the plastic surgery for like the David Pecker-esque character, like the guy who ran the Inquirer for, and, and covered up stories for Trump and does that, that for her as well. And she has access to a lot of money and a lot of favors. But also, she works for the mob because often the mob needs people need to go into hiding and they need to do plastic surgery to change their identity. So she has a lot of mob connections and a lot of favors there. And I'm also saying that there's like this vast underground conspiracy of like, like sex slave trafficking where people who want custom slaves, they will have people kidnapped and then brought to her to physically change them into whatever they're wanted to be. And, and then, you know, that like, so at the highest echelons of, of corrupt politics and industry and what, what have you, you know, she has, you know, she has blackmail material on all of them. She has connections with all of them. So basically, she can do anything and be anywhere. She's sort of like an ultimate supervillain just based on all these connections she's made. And so when what happens to Frank Kitchen happens to him, when he becomes Francis Kitchen, I, mean, I, mean, I guess I'm never going to settle on that. But uh, basically, it, it it's running up against all of those different factors and having to sort of infiltrate all of them and kill all the right people to, to climb that ladder of influence in order to get to her ultimate target. And I'm saying, get rid of the whole, like, I wanted to do this to, to see if you would redeem yourself kind of thing, or even misogyny. I, I don't, I don't want to make it a misogynistic thing. I don't want to make the character misogynistic and maybe that's why they didn't do it in the movie maybe they just they wanted her to be more sympathetic right off the bat even though she's a killer i'm saying this was pure on evil revenge on sigourney weaver's part and she said basically take this guy 
put him in this in the the sex slavery ring i'll make him a her and then sell her off into sex slavery to some like russian oligarch or something and that was the well that was the initial plan but then francis kitchen now then escapes kills the russian oligarch maybe even like takes all his money and his guns and then goes off on his on her revenge kick but she's been made into like like the prototypical sort of sex slave body, but as a sort of still a badass assassin. So then you can justify casting like a really attractive uh, female for the for the lead. Uh, but that's sort of like that's that's ingrained in it, so you can't complain about it when it's gross. <laughs> that's that's this my story, and I'm sticking to it. Uh, but anyway, that that just mean, makes it more straightforward. That like this was just the punishment. I wanted you to. I wanted to not only put you in a scenario where I take your manhood and your identity away, but then you're just being basically raped for the rest of your life until you, until they decide to kill you, Russian oligarch style. But it, of course, that plan backfires, and then it becomes sort of a cat and mouse game between the two characters over the course of several seasons. You know, it's it's. I guess I was going to say it's like the fugitive, but it's like the fugitive in reverse. The fugitive is the bad guy and the good guy is the one chasing him. I can't think of a like a, a go-to reference that, that's structured similarly, at least in TV. That's like like a, a one-man manhunter. I guess I guess it would be two women woman hunt. I'm just going to I'm just going to bypass that. Anyway, uh, that would be my TV show uh, for uh, the assignment to the series. And that gets me to video game. Which you know, lately I feel like I've been I've been leaning a lot towards like modern kind of games for my reference points. You know, I'll say it's like it needs to be a survival horror game or you know like 3D modern games. Uh, but you know, I'm a retro gamer at heart. You know, I have my little retro pie Raspberry Pi machine here. I that's most of the games I play are either those or like indie PC games that are clearly referencing retro games. Uh, so I wanted to kind of pitch a retro game for this. And my my immediate thought, my first thought was if you ever played a Nintendo game called Rolling Thunder. Um, and they, they did a couple sequels. I think they did one on Super Nintendo, maybe maybe one or two. I, I only played the original NES one, but it was like a, it had a, an interesting mechanic where you know you had you had a gun and you had to refill bullets. You could run out of bullets if you shot too wildly, and uh, you had to like hide in and out of doors to dodge and like do- it, it's a very interesting cover system at least for for the NES. Uh, so that was my initial thought, but I'm thinking maybe mix that to kind of incorporate elements from the film. So it's not just a lady shooting people and then the story sequences. And, of course, NES story sequences were very esoteric and, and hard to kind of discern. Uh, but I'm, I'm saying more than just that, you, you incorporate the idea that, that... And they introduce this early on when, when she wakes up. Well, when he wakes up as she, she has to take hormones. Sigourney Weaver has left her like a month of, of hormone replacement pills and and tells her like if you don't take well she she doesn't i was gonna say she tells her that if she doesn't take these pills she's gonna get sick but they never actually mention like what happens if you don't take the hormones and not knowing anything about that myself i had to do research on it because my thinking was why not just not take the hormones wouldn't that revert a lot of it wouldn't you like your breasts shrink i don't know if they were implants or or if they were just you know i'm just saying wouldn't that be advantageous but i guess if you don't take the hormones you do get very sick you do get very ill independent of, and it's not going to necessarily reverse it. I think it's not going to grow your dick back, obviously. But my, my thinking is that is sort of, in the game format, that is the thing that you need to get to keep going. There's like a timer. Essentially, your health keeps going down, and you have to get those pills in order to stay alive uh, throughout the level. But I was also thinking, if you've ever seen the game uh, Jekyll and Hyde, uh, if you ever if you ever saw the uh, Cinemasker, the angry video game nerd, it's sort of a notorious game on that website because you know, it was like the like the worst game he'd ever played, and they they've played it multiple times for multiple series. And the the premise is you're Jekyll and you're going across one end of the screen and then I think if you take too much damage 
you become hide and then the, the the game reverses you're going the opposite way and it's like the whole level reverses and if you get to the point where you turned into hide before you turn back to jekyll then you, the game's over and it's a really weird way to do a platformer game but i was thinking do something like that with the the male and the female version of frank kitchen where it's like I don't know if maybe it's a punishment or not. Maybe it's like only in the female form you have to get the hormones, and if you don't get enough hormones, you do revert back to, to the male Frank Kitchen or something. I don't know how you would do it. I mean, you would never do it because this is never a thing that's going to be done. It's just a, a hypothetical thought exercise. But uh, in this universe where this was an actual game, I don't know how you would specifically plan that out, but I would have some element of like switching back and forth to, to justify it being a movie about this, or I mean, a game about this movie rather than just a, a game about somebody with a gun. So uh, that, that, that would be my pitch for, for the assignment, the game. And I guess you could probably do something better if it was in 3D. That's the other thing. Modern games can do so much more, so when you're trying to incorporate elements from a movie to make the game specific and unique to that movie, it's much easier to do that if you have more more processing power to work with. So yeah, that, that's why I've, I've maybe skewed away from the retro stuff, but I want to pitch more retro games because, again, that's just the games that I love. And I, I would have played... I would have played the assignment, the game, if it was maybe a more fun version of Jekyll and Hyde. Jekyll and Hyde is a terrible game, mostly because you can't really attack as Jekyll. You just have a cane, and I think all it can kill is like a bee in one level. Uh, but uh, but something like that, where where you actually have like more power in both forms, so it's actually a little more fun, but still employs that kind of duality mechanic. Uh, that would that would be my pitch for a video game, and that gets me to merchandise. And this one, I feel like this was an abject failure on my part. I couldn't really think of anything directly from the film to merchandise. I mean, you can always, I always go with like Barbies and action figures and things. And this, I was thinking, yeah, could, could I do like a, a transgender Barbie? It starts out as Ken and then flips into Barbie, but I just felt like that was really lazy. And then I, I mean, I didn't really resolve that problem. The thing I actually came up with was still lazy, but, and it's even less connected to the film. So maybe, maybe I should have just went with the thing that I just said and not what I'm about to say, which is, I kept thinking of like hit woman apparel, but specifically like if you're a guy and you want to dress up like a girl and also kill people, this is the stuff you can special order from a website in order to do it. So like, you know, they have like breast falsies, like, like form breast forms you can put on like to, to look like you have breasts. It's like a bra with those in them, but it also doubles as a holster. So like you could do the sexy thing that female assassins always do where they, they pull a gun out from between their breasts. I say that they always do that. I say that they always do that in movies. And now that I think about that, I don't think they do that in movies that often. Maybe that's just my weird fetish, and I've applied that to my memory of things. Um, also, you know, it's not really like that that functional or efficient a thing to do. But I'm saying it's sexy because the gun. I don't know if you realize this is a fairly phallic thing, and the breasts are also a, a sexual erogenous zone, at least in my head. So you know, it's a it's a it's a, the contact of two things that are are metaphors for other things, you know sexually speaking so anyway uh, they got like a breast form holster i was also thinking like a bullet casing that you, you spin it and lipstick comes out of it or maybe like uh you know like you have like those really like like clocky sort of pumps like not like a stiletto heel but like a thick pump but then you pull the pump off and then the the, the shoe becomes a more sensible shoe but then the, the pump itself is like a gun clip you could clip it into your gun and you, you got you got additional ammo there that's I don't know. Like I said, this was an abject failure. This was not. This isn't something I'm proud of. I, I'm babbling now because I just I feel like I could have done a lot better with this, and I I chose not to, and I'm still choosing not to. It's not like I'm I'm gonna pause this podcast and do any additional work. I could do that, but I'm not going to. I'm just gonna move on to the next thing, which is porn parody. And I alluded to this 
earlier that, you know, this has been getting skeevier and skeevier every week. This time, only because it was so obvious, I feel like I, I can't even be blamed for it. Because it's like, if, if anybody was posed the problem of coming up with the porn parody title for the assignment, it's the assignment, right? It's the it's just the same thing, just with the ass emphasized. And a lady, like, bending over on the cover. You know, that that's that's all you do. I, again, I, I can't be held responsible for that. That's just too obvious. But I'm also saying that I feel like this, of all the movies I've done so far in this podcast, this would be the first porno version of a movie that I feel like lends itself to some sort of legitimacy. Like, where you, you know, you have those porns that are, like, big-budgeted, like the pirate movie and uh, actually Stormy Daniels before she was uh, a bane in Trump's existence. She, she actually directed a movie called Wanted, which was apparently like a, like a sprawling western that also had uh, sex in it, sort of like the, the Heaven's Gate of porn. I, I've never seen it. I don't know if that's the case, but I know it's like a feature-length movie with a budget. And I'm saying this could be that as well. This same premise, just, you know, with porn in it, with more sexuality to it. Because that's the thing. For a movie all about sex and gender identity, the sexuality is very much drained from it. There's one sort of relationship he has with this woman who eventually betrays him. But, I, don't, I mean, overall, it just, I feel like it could have been... And I say this, it could have been sleazier and probably should have been a little sleazier. But I'm saying the porn version of that would definitely have been, and I think probably would have worked a little better. Plus, you could you could emphasize the the transsexual nature where you maybe you have an actual transsexual like pre-op transsexual actress who can be like doll themselves up as a man first, and then you know be more natural to who she is, and then you know but and obviously you know still have have sex with a bunch of dudes and ladies, you know, and you can do both because you know it's it's she bridges both worlds. Uh, but and then she also kills people. That's that's what I'm saying. The assignment porn parody of the assignment is, and I'm saying you you know you put a good budget behind it. You maybe get uh, I don't I mean I was trying to think of a of a quality porn. Well, Stormy Daniels. I was gonna say porn director Stormy Daniels. I know she did one of these. Uh, so I have her do this one with all the money she gets from uh, suing Donald Trump and and trouncing him in court. Uh, so I'm saying that that's my porn parody, and that gets me to the last part of the episode, uh, which is the drinking game. And I'm saying for this one, and I always preface this, uh, usually I forget and I preface it at the end afterwards, which isn't really a preface, but I say uh, this is for entertainment purposes only. I don't drink. I don't necessarily recommend that you do. I don't judge you if you do. If you want to drink, drink yourself silly. Drink responsibly, or at least I recommend that you do. And uh, and I don't want to be sued if anybody gets alcohol poisoning from drinking from this podcast. But I do pitch a drinking game where you can drink every time you see these elements. And the first one I'm saying, anytime you see like a bullshit pretentious literary quote, actually rather, anytime you hear one, you take a drink. Uh, anytime you uh, see like a bullshit comic book transition, I forget they did, I forgot to mention they do that too. Uh, I this was actually the after in 1978 after the original writer. Uh, couldn't get it off the ground, and uh, Walter Hill couldn't do anything with it. Apparently, they published it as a French comic book, like in the 80s, I think. Uh, so this is sort of technically based on both the original script and the French comic book, and they do these those shitty like animated comic transitions a lot, where they, they take the live-action scene and then trace over it so it looks like a comic book panel, and then go to the next scene. It, it sounds... I mean, it, this doesn't sound necessarily too egregious, but I fucking hate it. And every, every time I see him in a movie, it just seems so lazy and chintzy. But anyway, anytime you see one of those, and you see a lot of them, so again, you're going to be drinking a lot. And then I'm finally, finally saying, anytime you see one character just outright betray another character in a way that's supposed to be like a big shocking moment, you get about five or six of those. Uh, in, in addition to the initial betrayal of the mob guy kidnaps him and sends him over to, to get turned into a lady. Uh, so I'm saying, anytime you see a betrayal, you take a drink. And 
that's it. That's my drinking game. And that's my 10-point cinematic universe multimedia franchise for the assignment. So uh, that's where I leave you. The next thing, the only thing left is to tell you what I'm going to do next week. And next week, this was my modern pick. So next week, uh, that would just happen to be at random. Next week is going to be my classic pick, which is any movie that is uh, that premiered in 1969 or before. So anything prior to the 70s is uh, eligible for classic. Uh, it could be any genre. Uh, this week it is sci-fi, and uh, this week the 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 classic movie, uh, which would be I believe number nine on my uh, my ten block of of episodes. So this would be the next episode nineteen. And it's going to be Planet of the Vampires, which is a '60s sci-fi movie that I've never seen. That I feel like it's sort of in keeping with like movies like Forbidden Planet, very far-flung sci-fi, very heady sci-fi. I don't know that for sure. Again, I've never seen it, but uh, but that'll be the movie next week, Planet of the Vampires. And I don't believe actual vampires are in it. I think they're a metaphor for something else. I, again, I could also be wrong about that, but that'll be next week. And so that's it for this episode of Headcanon. And as Johnny Red always says, walk on water, eat bullets, and shit out ice cream. Thank you, and I'll see you next time.